All right. Continuing in the parables. Hey, how about Evan Jacobson last week? That was great for him to, to step in and preach. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew tonight. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, I, I cheated a little bit on this one. This one's not really a parable, but it is a quasi-parable. And I'll explain more on that in just a minute. But as, as we get into the text, a, a parable is, we've been talking about this, right? It's a story with a a point, right? A story with a point. Every week, that word that I fill in the blank with is the same. It's point. Um, it's a story with a point. Don't get caught up on the moral of the story thing. Yes, it's the moral of the story, but it's a story with a point. It's, it's, a, it's something that's real life. It's relatable. It's something that isn't like fairies and unicorns with wings and everything else. Like my son Joshua last night was like, I, I wish unicorns existed. And we were like, what? What are you even talking about? Like, why? It's just a horse with a horn. Um, it's something that's relatable, something that's real. And that's what we're coming to in our text tonight. But our text tonight is, is more of a warning than it is a story with a point. It's a warning with a point. And there's some interesting warnings that I came across in getting ready for this, like uh, this one right here, which talks about how you should check a baby's diaper. Uh, I can tell you that option one is the right one. Option two, shoving your hand down in the back is you're going to find out if that baby's got any poop in the diaper, but it's not going to be a pleasant experience for you. So warning, don't check your baby's diaper uh, that way. This sign, caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. Oh yeah, and by the way, uh, the bridge is out ahead. And so you, you read that at first and you're going, why is there a sign that's warning me that the sign has sharp edges? Shouldn't you have just not made the sign to begin with? It's kind of a useless warning until you see, oh, this little part down here. Also, the bridge is out ahead. Maybe that should be the, the bigger warning there. And then, of course, there's this one, which is everybody's favorite when they go to the zoo, right? The splatter zone. Stand back because the hippopotamus has a uh, gyrating tail that spreads its poop everywhere when it uh, uses the bathroom. My kids saw the one in San Diego, which was the lion one that said it has a spray zone of seven feet. That's impressive and also frightening at the same time. And then there's this one. I don't know what kind of church they're going to, but articles of value should not be left on seats while receiving Holy Communion. Grandma might be running off with your iPhone and your keys if you leave them when you get up to go down and receive communion from the priest. That's why we pass the plates here for, uh, for communion at our church. We don't want anybody stealing anything while you get up and go down there. And then there's this one, which is probably the most hyperbolic of all of them, which says this, uh, the wrath of the ancients will fall upon your head. Your shoelaces will not stay tied. Rabid squirrels will, invade, squirrels will invade your home. Food in your refrigerator will mysteriously spoil. Your vehicle will start making that expensive knocking sound again. And no one will talk to you at parties. So do not park there. Warning signs. They're ridiculous. But a lot of times they're helpful, right? And, and we like to be warned, or we should appreciate at least being warned when it's something that we need to be warned about. And in the the text that we're coming to in Matthew chapter 5 tonight, this is a warning that all of us need to listen to. It's a warning that we need to hear and that the the original audience of Jesus needed to hear as well. And it's in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, which we'll get there in just a moment. But in this text, Jesus is going to encourage us and warn us to deal radically with sin now lest in the future we be cast into hell for all of eternity because we didn't deal with our sin. And so you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy. And you might be thinking to yourself, but, but don't we deal with our sin through the cross of Christ? And, and the answer to that question is yes. That's the primary way that we deal with our sin. And that was a, a radical way for God to deal with our sin, to put all of our sin on Christ, to punish all of our sin on Christ so that he bore the entire wrath of God for us. So that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, tonight where you sit, you're forgiven. 
There's nothing left for you to do. You don't have to earn that forgiveness. You don't have to prove to God that you are a worthwhile investment of his righteousness by his gift of Christ dying on the cross for you. But having said that, if we've truly placed our faith in Christ, we have to realize something, and that is that God is not done with us. He doesn't save us and then say, hey, I'll I'll see you in a little while when you're in heaven. God's not done with us yet. He's saved us to make us holy. Or to put it a different way, God has saved us to sanctify us. Again, Matthew 25, 29 through 30, it's not necessarily a parable, but it is this blend of a a metaphor and a hyperbole and a parable all rolled into one. And it's definitely a teaching device that Jesus used to communicate one central point. And again, what's that central point? That central point is this, deal radically with your sin now so that you're not going to be thrown into hell for your sin later. Matthew 5, 29 through 30, let's read it together. It says this. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, the first thing that we have to understand when we come to this parable tonight is what a hyperbole is. And maybe you guys are running through the Rolodex in your mind trying to think back to English class going, I know I've heard the word, but I don't remember exactly what it means. A hyperbole is a statement of exaggeration to make a point. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's like when we say, hey, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. Do I literally mean that my eyes are bigger than my stomach? No. What does that mean? That means I went through the buffet line and I took way too much food and there's no way I'm going to be able to finish it. And I need to call Joseph Lopez to come down to the house and finish it for me, right? Or that, that statement, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I don't want to know if you guys have eaten a horse, but you don't actually mean that when you say that. You're making a statement of exaggeration to, to make a point, to say, man, I'm, I'm super hungry, right? Or if you say, I'm so exhausted I could sleep for days, if you could sleep for days, you, you would have some serious health problems going on if, if that was what was happening. But we get the point. You're exaggerating to drive home that point that you're exhausted. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. That's why he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Was Jesus being literal here? No, Right? Because churches would be a pretty hideous place to hang out if Jesus was being literal. All these people walking around without their eyes and without their hands. He's not being literal. In fact, we know that because if I tear out my eye and throw it away from me, does that stop my sin? No, it doesn't. If I chop off my hand and throw it away from me, does that stop my sin? No, it may make it more difficult if I'm a klepto, but I've still got my left hand, right? And so it's, it's not the, the literal application of this text that Jesus is driving at. He's using hyperbole. He's using this point of exaggeration to communicate something, to emphasize something. But does that mean that we should just write this off? Should we just step back and go, you guys know Jesus, just being dramatic again? No, of course not, right? And, and we know that. We know that, that there's something that, that we need to pay attention to. Something that we need to lean into here. Well, think about the eye and the hand for a second that Jesus talks about in this text. Two incredibly important parts of the body. And as we think about it, they're also significant when it comes to sin. Look at this verse. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is, in da- is darkness, how great is the darkness? So this is not even a chapter later that Jesus is again talking about the eye. And he's saying the eye is the lamp of the body. If you're taking in things that are good, things that are biblical, things that are right, things that are pure, then your body, he says, is going to be full of light. But if, on the other hand, you're using your eyes to take in things that are wicked and evil and sinful and vile and disgusting, then your whole body is going to be, he says, full of darkness. And how great is that darkness going to be? And so our eyes are are intimately connected to our sin life. But then again, so are our hands, right? Here's this verse from Joshua. Joshua 7, 21, when I saw, there's the eyes, when I saw the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I, here it is, I coveted them and I took them. And so in that instance, we're talking about thievery, we're talking about stealing, and there's a lot of different ways that we can use our hands for wickedness and for evil. In the the context of Matthew chapter 5, the the context is talking about sexual immorality. And so you guys can, can... entertain your own thoughts as to what Jesus was driving at there. But certainly the, our eyes and our hands are involved in that practice, in sexual immorality, whatever the sin may be. Jesus is driving at here and using these, again, these statements of hyperbole, these statements of exaggeration to make a point. With our eyes, we take in the world around us and we make decisions based on what we see. You see a, a pretty s- sunrise right out at the beach and you uh, can uh, appreciate the beauty that comes in through your eyes, and your eyes uh, take that sight in. You can appreciate the, the beauty of the sunrise. Or you see that somebody spilled their coffee on the side of the road, and you're walking down the sidewalk, and you step around it to make sure that you don't get your, your new kicks all messed up with somebody's uh, coffee spilled all over the ground. But then there's sometimes that we see things with our eyes, and we covet them, don't we? We see things with our eyes, and we say, I want that even though I know I shouldn't have it or I can't have it. And that turns into lust, and that turns into sinful thoughts, and that turns into sinful actions. And that's where our hands enter the picture. With our hands, we're actually carrying out the things that are going on in our hearts. It could be instead of the same thing of, of our feet, right? We, our feet can carry us into sinful actions and sinful deeds. But it's, it's putting our sinfulness into action. Sometimes we use our hands for just mundane tasks. We brush our teeth. Hopefully you do every day, you you put on deodorant, you get dressed, you feed yourself, but then we also can use our hands for more significant things, right? Like greeting somebody, we we shake hands with somebody, we give somebody a hug, somebody we love, we put our arm around them, we can use our hands for good, but then we can also use our hands to take things that aren't ours, to carry out those sinful desires that flood our minds through our eyes and to put them into action, the things that have already begun to take root in our hearts. We understand this. Jesus' original audience understood this. And so he's using this hyperbole and he's saying these things that are are pretty intense and graphic. Tear out your eye. I mean, think about that imagery for a minute. Think about the, the, everything that would go into that. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to get a paper cut on your eyeball? Now you do, right? You cringe at that. Well, imagine tearing out your eye, reaching in and plucking it from the eye socket. Why? The idea is, Jesus is saying, hey, look, if your eye is leading you to sin, if the things that you're taking in through your eye are just garbage and it's leading to sin in your life, he says it's better that you get rid of your eyes so that you stop sinning. Again, that's not going to cause us to stop sinning, but Jesus is driving at something. Think about something even lesser than this, whether or not you'd be willing to do this. Hey, if your laptop causes you to sin, your desktop computer causes you to sin, get rid of it, smash it, go Kirk Cameron and, and whatever that 
cheesy Christian movie was where he beat the, the ever-living daylights out of his computer because he was looking at porn on it, right? If, if that's causing you to sin, smash it. Let me ask you, would you be willing to do that? If your smartphone is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Would you be willing to do that? If your social media accounts are causing you to sin, get rid of them. Would you be willing to do that? If that boyfriend or girlfriend that you have in your life is causing you to sin, would you be willing to break up with them? Now we're getting more real, right? But you may say, man, there's no way Jesus can actually expect me to pluck my eye out of its socket or cut my hand off. And you're right. No, he's going for shock value. But some of those other things that I just mentioned, he does expect you to do. Because what he's driving at, and the reason that he's using this hyperbole, this exaggeration, is because he's driving at this whole idea that that sin is insanely and hideously dangerous to you, and there needs to be a radical response to sin in your life. He doesn't want anyone to walk away in his original audience or tonight as we look at this text together thinking, you know what, my sin's not that big of a deal. Whatever your sin is, he wants you to walk away going, man, I need to deal with this in a radical fashion. I need to deal with this intensely. Plucking my out is not going to stop the sin, so I need to figure out what is going to stop the sin. And whatever that cost is, then I need to, to pay it. I need to do it. So point number one for us tonight. It's this. Recognize the radical demand of holiness. Recognize the radical demand of holiness. I said earlier that your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And his finished work, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that means there's, there's nothing left for you to add to your salvation. If you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Christ, you are saved, okay? And you're, you're secure. You've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. But like I said at the beginning, God has more for you than just to save you and leave you as he saved you. God wants to save you and to sanctify you. He wants to save you and to make you holy. In fact, that's God's end with you. is not to bring you to, to necessarily just be with him so that you've got all the warm fuzzies and you're in heaven and, and whoop, whoop-de-doo and everything else. God saved you to make you holy. And that's not something that begins in eternity. That's something that starts right now. And that's why Jesus is leaning in so hard on how we treat sin in our lives. In fact, God wants to make you holy so much that he paid the price of killing his son in order to make you holy. And not just positionally, not just saying now you're not uh, uh, an object of wrath, you're an object of mercy and grace. He's saying practically he killed Christ for you to make you holy. And the Bible tells us this. 1 Peter chapter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That next word, that. What's that communicating? Rhymes with schmerpus and starts with a P. Purpose. You guys are on it. Yes. Purpose. For the purpose that. One of the reasons that Jesus died was, yes, to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. But also, another reason that he died was so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's practical holiness. In other words, God has saved you and now he wants to sanctify you. Now he wants you to live out your faith, to be obedient to him. To stop entertaining sin and to start killing sin in your life. How about Titus chapter 2, 14? Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. 
Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, there we see that one of the reasons that Jesus died was to redeem us from all lawlessness. Again, the, the, the point is not eternity at this point in time. Yes, that's when this will be fully realized, but there's a practical, there's a right now element to all of this. He wants you to stop living lawless. He wants you to start living as one who is zealous for good works. A, a person who's been redeemed by him as a person for his own possession. Jesus wants to look at you and says, you're mine because I bought you on the cross. And so now I want you to live free from lawlessness, zealous for good works. But that's not all. There's also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, speaking of being bought. 1 Corinthians, shameless plug for our retreat. If you're not signed up, sign up because you'll hear more about this book of the retreat. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When does glorifying God in my body start? In eternity? No, it starts as soon as I've repented from my sins and put my faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior. At, at, at that point, moving forward, I need to realize and recognize that God, thank you that I am saved, that I don't have to earn my salvation. And now help me understand that you've bought me, I'm yours, and you have a purpose for me. And your purpose for me right now is not lawlessness, but sanctification. It's not godlessness, it's holiness. And so now I need to get after it. The demand of holiness is radical. Some questions for you. Do you have an aversion to sin in your life? Not just the big ones. Not just the, the maybe three or four that you're like, man, I know I, and we use this word, right? Struggle with this sin. Let's stop using that word. You're either doing all out war and, and fighting that sin or you're being defeated by that sin. But let's stop saying, man, I, I really struggle with this sin. Because that's just a cop out, okay? What, what are the, the sins in your life? Do you have an aversion to sin? Not just the big ones, but all sin in your life. Do you view your sin, all of your sin, as an offense against God who killed his son to make you holy? Do you see your sin as a threat to your present relationship with God? I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And, and I'm talking to believers as well as unbelievers there. Your sin is a threat to your present relationship with God. I'll explain that more in just a minute. Do you see your sin as a threat to your future eternity? That if our, our lives have just rampant, unchecked sin in them, maybe not even rampant, if our lives have just unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of sin that we are harboring and holding on to, refusing to, to deal with biblically, it, it may be that we have a, a false understanding of, of the gospel and we're not really truly saved. Do you see your sin as a revelation of what's really going on in your heart? Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. But we like to talk about, well, my heart is leading me to do this. My, my heart is telling me to do this. That's the worst advice you could ever listen to is to listen to your heart. Do not do that, no matter what the songs say. 
Do you see your sin as harmful to others? And then this, do you have the same view of your sin as you do that same sin in others when you see it? A lot of times it's easy for us to look at somebody else and go, man, that, I can't believe they, they would ever do that. When we've got the same thing going on in our lives and we're not dealing with it the same way, we give ourselves way more grace than we give other people sometimes. These are good diagnostic questions, but again, we have to not just diagnose, we need to act. We need to act. We need to recognize the radical demand of holiness, the practical demand of holiness. And the only way that we're going to act, the only way that we're going to take some of these measures, the measures that I was talking about earlier and some of the other ones that, may, that maybe you need to take is we need to see the value of holiness. And so think about the value of holiness for what's going on right now. I, told, I said I was going to come back to your present relationship with God. So think about it right now. Number one, just closeness to the Lord. If you are living in such a way that, that you are pursuing the Lord, that you're obedient to the Lord, that you're living out your, your relationship with God, you're obeying God, you're in the word, you're praying regularly, you're around other believers, you've got accountability in your life. There's a closeness with the Lord that you feel that gives you a joy about being a believer. But on the flip side of that, if you're not doing those things, and you're sitting there and you're saying, you use words like, I feel spiritually dry. I feel distant from God. Maybe you're struggling with, with you're saying, man, I, I just feel depressed. Some of the first questions I ask whenever anyone sits down in my office for counseling is, how's your time in the Word and how's your prayer life? And it's not that reading the Bible and praying is going to make everything go away and all, all, every life just hunky-dory like Joel Osteen wants to preach about it all the time. It's not that, but it is going to help. And if you're not reading your Bible and you're not praying, you're not going to be doing well spiritually. So there's a benefit that radical holiness gives you right now. You can come and, and show up at church, not just because you feel an obligation to, even though you walk in here feeling like a hypocrite. You can come and show up at church feeling like, man, I want to come and engage and worship God and be around other believers, and I, and I can't wait to get there. You can pick up your Bible in the morning and do your daily Bible reading, not going, man, I... I hope I don't read a passage that's going to be talking about the sin that I'm hiding. But you can pick up your Bible and you can read it going, God, I want to be in your word. I want to devour it. You can go before the throne of God and you can pray, not feeling like, God, I feel like such a hypocrite to pray to you when you know exactly what I've been doing this week. But you can go before the Lord and you can pray going, okay, God, I'm here. I'm your servant. Show me the sin in my life that's, that's undealt with. But Lord, I want to, I love you. Thank you for all the blessings you've given me. There's just a, there's a, a relationship that exists there. There's a closeness with the Lord that radical holiness produces that's so worth it. But not just for the present. There's also that benefit for the eternity as well. We want to hear, right, when we stand before the Lord someday, well done, my good and faithful servant. Okay, if, if you're not living a life of, of radical holiness here presently, that commendation is not going to be there for you. Or think about eternal rewards. Do you guys know there's going to be different levels of eternal rewards in heaven? Not different levels of heaven, but different levels of eternal rewards in heaven. And you might think, man, that's, that sounds pretty harsh. And you're going to run off and, and look up something by John Piper about whatever. That's great. I'm not knocking Piper. In fact, I, I stole this analogy somewhat from Piper. But let me, let me put it this way. To illustrate this, I enjoy coffee, right? I do. I love coffee. Pastor Mark enjoys coffee at a level that I'll never have. He just does. 
He, he's an elitist. He knows, he, like, he, he can tell you the difference between a pour over bean and just a, a not pour over bean. And I can tell you the difference between Folgers, Chelsea Allen, and not Folgers, but I'm not at Pastor Mark's level. So I enjoy coffee and I love coffee. And it's, I look forward to it in the morning. I get up and I'm like, I can't wait to have my cup of coffee and sit down and read, read the Bible. I, I look forward to that. I love coffee. But Pastor Mark enjoys coffee at a level that I, I can't enjoy. I'm not there. I don't have the, the ability to enjoy it at that level. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about eternal rewards here. We're all going to be in heaven. We're all going to be enjoying God's glory to the full capacity that we can enjoy God's glory. But there are going to be some, based on how they've lived here and the eternal rewards that they have, that are going to be able to enjoy the glory of God to a level that we can never enjoy the glory of God. And so hopefully a motivation for us is that when we get to heaven, we all want to have this limitless level. And we're not going to be there comparing and competing and contrasting and having envy and things like that because that's all sinful and the old is gone, Revelation 21. There's not going to be sinful uh, jealously going on up there. But hey, we want to enjoy God's glory to the max. So there's motivation there. Also, the motivation of seeing Christ, of seeing Christ. And this is beginning where, where we're getting into this idea that, that eternity is at stake in some regards in this. And there's the new heavens and new earth. So it's not without motivation that Christ is saying, deal with sin radically. It's like when I give my kids instructions and I tell them things and I set rules in place and they don't like those rules and yet I do that not because I don't like them and not because I'm, I'm like, finally, now I get to push my thumb on you and be like, ah, suckers. No, that's not why. It's because I know what's good for them and I want them to thrive. I want them to excel and so I put parameters in place and guidelines in place for them. That's what God has done for us. Salvation puts a radical demand for holiness on our lives. Do you guys know what that, not that, that is? Do you guys know what that is? Yeah, it is a rock. It's known by a name. It's called the Ralston Rock. Anybody heard of Aaron Ralston? Aaron Ralston was pinned uh, for whatever, 127 hours, however long it was, under that rock, that very rock, 800-pound rock, uh, to the point where he eventually got to the point where he says this. It says on Tuesday, it says he ran out of water. On Thursday, he realized that his survival required drastic action. According to a statement by the sheriff's office in Emory County, Utah, he used his pocket knife to free himself the only way he could by cutting off part of his arm. Though such brutal surgery is hard to imagine, others in desperate straits have done it, managing to sever the muscles and the tendons that attach limbs to joints with a modest jackknife. You guys may have heard of him. You can read about him. You can read about the story. He literally cut off his arm below the elbow with a pocket knife in order to free himself from that rock. And he hiked his way out of that canyon that he was trapped in so that he could save himself. Guys, that's what we're talking about when it comes to sin in our lives. That's what is at stake. And we need to understand that that's what's at stake. Ralston knew if he stayed there and just continued to cry for help, he was going to die. Guys, if we stay pinned under the weight of sin that's unconfessed and unchecked in our lives, it may be that you're not saved. And in the end, you're calling out for help, but you're going to be left and you're going to die apart from God, apart from Christ. So you need to deal radically with sin. And that's what Jesus gets to. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away. Why? Why, Jesus? He answers. He says, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And now we see the stakes. 
We can all agree losing an eye, losing a body part would be devastating. We'd get over it. We'd figure out a way to cope here. But none of us are signing up on that list going, yeah, I'll do that. And Jesus is saying it's, it's better to do that than to be thrown into hell for all of eternity because you haven't dealt with your sin radically. We need to have this mindset that what's at stake eternally does have some bearing on, on the present. Right? Anybody in the room, just think to yourself, you want to be a nurse, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer. You sacrifice now to pursue that future reality. There are things that you do now in order to achieve that in the future, in order to say, okay, that's my goal in the end. I know that if that's my goal in the end, then I need to be doing these things now. You may deny things presently because you know they won't help you in pursuing that future goal. Or maybe weight loss. Let's talk about that for a second. Anyone who's ever wanted to drop weight understands this concept. You can't keep eating the ice cream and the cake and the donuts and the ho-hos and expect to shed the pounds. It's not going to happen. You can't quit on the treadmill when it starts to feel difficult as much as you want to. You have to keep going. The same is true in some ways for our eternal state as well. Yes, the, the salvation side is done by God, is done entirely by Christ. But now there's a, a role for us as we move forward in faithful obedience to the Lord. It's like the, the nursing student who's like, I'm going to be a nurse. 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 Hey, did you know I'm going to be a nurse? I'm going to be a nurse. Did you know, have I told you I'm going to be a nurse? And then the graduation day gets there and this nursing student shows up and goes up to walk across the stage, but that nursing student has never showed up for a single day of class. You know what they're going to hear from the person handing the diplomas? Depart from me. I never knew you. And you think, well, that's absurd, but some of us do that with Christianity. I'm a Christian. Hey, did you know I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. Are you a Christian? You're a Christian? I'm a Christian. I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I asked Jesus into my heart. But that's as far as our Christianity goes. And there's going to come a day when we stand before the Lord and he's going to look at us and say, depart from me. I never knew you. And you say, well, Pastor PJ, that's not fair. I thought once saved, always saved. Yes, once saved, always saved. But make sure you're saved. That you're not just playing a game and going through the motions. Just because you got up and walked an aisle or raised a hand or prayed a prayer does not mean that you have actually repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your only hope for eternal life. And you say, well, how can I know? Well, let me ask you how the Bible says you can know. You know what the Bible is never going to tell you? Do you feel saved? If you feel saved, then you're saved. Yay! No, the Bible is going to hold up passages like Galatians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. There's a reason why Paul says, here's the works of the flesh and list them all out. And here's the works of the spirit and list them all out. You know why he does that? So that when we're wavering, when we're going, you know what, Lord, what's my confidence in? I've got a grid that I can hold my life up to and go, where do I fit? And that doesn't mean that anything that I've done saves me, but it says, hey, am I saved? Because if I'm saved, my life is going to be producing things. God's spirit within me is going to be producing the fruit of the spirit, and I better be seeing some of that. If I'm not seeing any of that, but I'm seeing a lot of the flesh, man, I need to at least step back and go, am I really, truly understanding what it means to have repented from my sins and put my faith in Christ as my Savior? Point number two, recognize the radical danger of sin. By the way, if you're panicking because of the clock, I only have two points for you tonight. 
Recognize the radical danger of sin. Your sin has to be dealt with. And eternally, it has to be dealt with in one of two places. At the cross, through genuine faith in Christ. Or in hell for all of eternity under the wrath of God. Two options. There's no third option. There's no middle ground. There's no second place. Love doesn't win the way Rob Bell wants you to think love wins. Hell is an eternal place where Jesus says that the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. A place of unending torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you're saying, okay, PJ, there's a lot of emphasis on obedience. Did Jesus preach a work-based salvation? No. Case in point right here. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, says, what must I do to be born again? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Who's doing the, the birthing here? Is it me? No, it's the Spirit of God giving us new life. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's contrasting here. What's the flesh and what's the Spirit? That which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is Spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus there, clearly in, Nicod in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you have to be born again, and that is an act of God, okay? So let's get absolutely clear. Jesus did not preach a works-based salvation. I am not up here trying to communicate a works-based salvation, but I am up here trying to communicate to you what Jesus did, and that is that there is an inseparable relationship between your holiness and your profession of faith. James chapter 2, 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Elsewhere in James chapter 2, he calls it dead. Faith apart from works is useless because it's not true saving faith. In other words, if, if all you are trusting in is a profession of faith without a life that's been changed, you have nothing more than the demons. Da daily Bible reading. Just this week, I can't remember if it was this morning or yesterday, but it talks about Jesus was casting out demons. And did you catch it? Not permitting the demons to speak. Why? Why did it say he didn't permit the demons to speak? Because they knew who he was. And Jesus is saying, it's not my time yet. And so he's telling the demons, hey, shut up. The demons have a better theology than a lot of people in our churches today. But that's not going to save them. Just because you know that Jesus is your Savior, just because you know that he died on the cross, just because you know about substitutionary atonement and the wrath of God and the, the, the empty tomb, just because you know these things doesn't mean that you're saved. It means that you have what the demons have. There's got to be that total surrender to say, it's, I need this. 
I've got nothing and I need Christ. And you can fool everyone around you. And the people in Matthew chapter 7, when they're standing there saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? They had fooled everybody around them. But you can't fool Christ. See, I fear that we're so afraid of implying that we can earn our salvation through our works that we don't challenge ourselves to examine our lives to see whether or not we're genuinely in the faith. And you say, well, Pastor PJ, again, how do I know? Again, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, use the grids that Paul gave us. He doesn't say, hey, do you feel the warm fuzzies about being saved? People come to me all the time. I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't feel like I'm saved. Okay, let's look at your life. Oh, well, I, I, I see more works of the Spirit than I do works of the flesh. Okay, so what's causing you to doubt right now? Don't trust your feelings. Look at what, what's bearing itself out. Guys, I'm not saying that Christians don't sin. My wife is in this room so that there's no way I could say that with any shred of integrity. You and I are going to sin. We are going to sin. And again, like I said at the beginning, you may have sins that are specifically troublesome to you. But I want to ask you, are you fighting them? Not struggling with them. Are you fighting them? Are you radically fighting your sin? Think about those things. Those things that I mentioned earlier, whether it's the internet, the computer, the phone, the the social media accounts, whatever it is that that are the the venues, the avenues for you to sin, if, if... were to radically treat sin, will you take those and eliminate them from your life? Do you hate your sin? Do you see your sin as a threat to your relationship with God? Believer, do you see your sin as a threat to your intimacy with God, your closeness with God? Do you want to be able to show up at church and not feel like a hypocrite? Let's start by actually dealing with our sin seriously. Do you see your sin as that disruption to your relationship with God, something vile that Jesus died for? Or do you just kind of tuck it under the umbrella of grace and think, well, it's no big deal. I'll deal with that later. I'll deal that with that when I'm older. Those are lies. And those lies are in- exceedingly dangerous. What did Jesus, in, not Jesus, what did, what did Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verse 1? What should we say? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? What did he say in response to that? No! He says, may it never be. No, absolutely not. And so yes, grace is there. No, you can't out-sin the grace of God. But don't try. Being a Christian, it's, it's a radical thing. I just want to challenge you again tonight. Throw out your preconceptions of legalism or self-righteousness or whatever you may be protesting about right now in your heart and and just read the text with me again. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Just read what Jesus says here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Not into time out in heaven, into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
And so just let the, the text speak for itself tonight. Are you living your life in a radically aggressive manner in response to Jesus Christ when it comes to sin? Or has Christianity been that thing that you've always done as long as it doesn't make you do things that are too inconvenient or ask you to sacrifice too much? I'm going to pray together and then we'll uh, spend some time in small groups. Hopefully the, the questions tonight will be beneficial. Um, let's pray. Father, it's a heavy message, and I understand that. God, I pray that, that I wasn't too harsh, and what came across was a tone of the fact that I, I love these men and women that are in this room. I care about them, Lord, and I want every single one of them to have a, a radical opposition to sin in their lives. I want every single one of them to be able to hear on that final day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Lord, I know that ultimately that doesn't come down to my merit or my works or how I live my life. That comes down to Christ and Christ's righteousness, Lord. I just want to make sure, Lord, that, that all of us are challenged to hold our lives up to the, the grid of Scripture and to say, am I really, truly saved? Am I new creation, a new creation? Am I walking in newness of life? Lord, we can have confidence that we are yours. We can have confidence that we're saved. And I pray that each and every person in this room would get to that place where they do have full confidence, knowing that when they breathe their last or when you come back for your church, that they will be with you. Lord, I pray that our time in small groups tonight would be just good and, and beneficial and that people would be willing to, to open up and let down their, their facades. Again, fooling somebody here is worthless because you are the God who knows all things. And there's one day that we will all be held accountable to you. And we'll stand before the throne and we'll have to give an account for what we did with Christ. And at that point in time, we can't fool anyone. So Lord, I pray that even tonight we would let our guard down and be willing to engage, be willing to talk about these things, be willing to ask for help, be willing to ask for accountability, whatever it may be, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.